starting from verse 1. After these things I heard, and it were a loud voice of a great multitude, having saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he, wa- and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creature, creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad, and give, him the, and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Verse 8. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the, sand, of the saints. And he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren, who hold the testimony of Jesus, worship, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let's have a further word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together in your name. Even, Lord, as we sing, we believe that you're here in our midst, Lord. We believe your word and we worship you and adore you as we stand, as we, as we bow down in your presence. Thank you for such a privilege. And Lord, now we, that we turn to your word, Lord, we confess that you are the only one that has words of eternal life. We are even reminded of that declaration of Peter, Lord. We don't have such words in ourselves. We cannot even enter into the true meaning of your word apart from you. So Lord, our prayer this, this evening in this time is, Lord, speak to our hearts. You that have such living words. You that desire to reveal yourself. Speak your living word to us, Lord. Give us that spirit of wisdom and revelation, Lord. And we pray for each one in this room, Lord. That you would somehow, Lord, reach us in our own level. Reach us in our own need. You know, Lord, all the, uh, the different ages, the different understandings. And we know that only you are capable, Lord, to speak to us and reach us wherever we are. We pray, Lord, speak that living word. We pray for that anointing of your Holy Spirit upon the one that speaks, upon everyone that listens. Lord, that your Spirit would be our guide tonight, leading us into Christ, opening our eyes, steering our hearts unto you. We pray, Lord, that we would be at your feet. And we echo, Lord, the prayer. We are sometimes tired, Lord, and uh, in ourselves, we, we are exhausted. And yet, Lord, when we are in your presence, there is a quickening, a refreshing, Lord. We pray, Lord, quicken us, Lord. Refresh us. Keep us attent to listen to what you want to say. We commit this time into your hands. We thank you very much for this wonderful privilege of being in your presence, of being called to be your bride, that you would lead us into that reality. In your precious name we pray. Amen. So, we just read the chapter, or part of the chapter, where we find the theme of our conference. And I just want to call your attention to this fact. Uh, This is actually one of the greatest scenes that you have described in the whole Bible, what we just read. The verses we read, they describe prophetically, it's something that we still wait, but they describe one of the biggest turning points in history. It's a tremendous chapter. 
so big. Uh, uh, just as a kind of uh, a little comment, uh, the word hallelujah, that we sometimes use it so kind of, so often and so abundantly in our choruses, in our, when we sing, actually uh, is a word from the Bible, of course, but uh, you're not going to find it very often in the Bible. It's actually a couple of times in the Psalms, and if I'm not mistaken, it only occurs four times in the New Testament. And guess where they are? Right here in this chapter. Isn't that something? Have you ever thought about that? It's such a wonderful word. It's such a heavenly word, as someone has said. It's, it's really, it means praise be the Lord. And it's yet is used so kind of sparingly in the Bible. And in this chapter that we just read, it is mentioned four times. I think this should give us a hint about the serious matter, the important thing that is being described in this scene that we just saw. So here is the, this is the background of the theme that we are considering. Uh, the, the bride has made herself ready. The background is what we just read. And as I was considering this matter and preparing for this sharing, the more I considered this, the more it sort of grew in my heart, the following fact. It seems to me, or it came to my heart, that we have in this chapter a very, I want to emphasize that word, a very important key in this matter of being prepared as the bride of Christ. In other words, it's not by accident. And of course, the Holy Spirit never does something by accident. And he inspired these words. It's not by accident that this matter of the bride being made ready is described in that background, in that context of something happening that we just read. In other words, I really feel that we have a very important key. If we want to understand, if we want to be prepared, if we want to allow the Lord to prepare us, or if we want to allow the Lord to teach us to prepare ourselves, I should be more careful, because this is what he's saying here, that the bride was not prepared passively. She has prepared herself. But the Lord is enabling that by His grace. But if we want to learn, what does it take? How are we going to prepare ourselves? We have a very important key in this chapter. And that's why I felt that it was important to read the first ten verses of chapter 19 of Revelation. And by the grace of the Lord, we want to consider, we want to do two things. I will give you a, a brief road map for, for the night. We want to consider, let's, let's try to use the time in two halves, hopefully. Uh, uh, the first half, we want to consider briefly the background of this chapter. To understand why, why this chapter is so important. Why these heavenly beings, and even, even other beings are saying, Hallelujah, four times to the Lord. Indeed, we have something very important, but let's understand why. How does this relate with our preparation as the bride of the Lamb? Okay, we want to use half the time considering this background. And in the other half, we would like to take a look on a, a, a sort of a, an example that we find in the Bible. We want to look at one character in the Bible. and I'll, I'll give you right away. The character is Daniel from the Old Testament. That somehow, as I was meditating on this issue, I was thinking, hmm... I really feel that there is some connection here, that we can kind of glean from the, from the life of Daniel some principles, some lessons that can teach us what does it take in that preparation process. So that is basically what we want to do for this time that we have together. And we trust that the Lord in his mercy and grace is going to meet us and lead us according to what he has prepared for this time. All right? So, the, the first thing I need to do is to grab some water here. <laughs> uh, all right. So, we already mentioned that this is a real important scene that we, we just read. And basically, you're going to find in this chapter that you have two women being described. Did you pay attention in that? We, of course, there are two symbolic women. They are, two, uh, 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 they are not literal persons that are, you know, you have the bride of the lamb, is one woman, and the other one is described as the great harlot. And there is a huge difference. Actually, the whole chapter, if you pay attention, is a contrast. The whole scene that is described is supposed to present to us a very didactical contrast. 
between the bride of the Lamb and that other woman, that is a harlot, is the, the complete opposite. So in a bride you have all this, this picture of pure love, of something that is really a, a, a true legitimate desire for a person. And in the harlot you have just the opposite. Something that is defiled, something that is illegitimate, something that is self-gratifying. So do you realize that you have this contrast? And it's very important, again, if we are going to understand our preparation, if we are being prepared to be the bride, why is the Holy Spirit presenting as the, as the background of this chapter the opposite, the harlot being judged? All right, keep that in mind. So what do these two women stand for? So very briefly, basically they are standing for two orders of things. They stand for two spiritual principles totally opposed to one another. But that's what, that's what they stand. They are, again, they are not literal women, but they are two corporate, you may call, corporate entities. So one of them we already know is uh, the bride of the Lamb. How about the other one? What is the name of the other one? Actually, in the chapter that we just read, you don't find the name. But of course, I'm sure that we remember what's the name of the other one, right? Mm. Anyone? Hello? <laughs> All right. If you read the ba- if you if you read a little, go back a little more in the book of Revelation. So read chapter 17 and 18, and you'll find that that woman, that woman, is named. She is Babylon, and she's described in chapter 17 as the mother of all harlots. She's like, she stands for that spiritual principle. And we want to briefly uh, try to, by the grace of the Lord, understand why is that so? And why is that relevant to our own preparation? So keep that in the back of your mind for a second. So what's the basic spiritual character of each one of these, these two women? Right? How about the bride? Well, first of all, as we already said, uh, and as our brother already put it so well this morning, she stands for pure love for the Lord Jesus. You can say that the bride of the Lamb are those that love the Lord Jesus and are following the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, this stands for a corporate entity. In other words, it's not a single person. It's not a matter just individual. Again, our brother put that this morning. But they, she represents something that is corporate. It's a group of people that somehow love the Lord Jesus, desire the, the Lord Jesus with a sincere heart. That's the basic picture that you're presented when you think on the bride, on the union between the bridegroom and the bride. Uh, of course, it also speaks of uh, an implication of that. It's an exclusive relationship, isn't it? Isn't that when you think on, uh, on a marriage, on a bridegroom, being you, uh, getting uh, together with the bride, it's an exclusive relationship. The bride will never say, yeah, you know, my, my heart is 70% belongs to, to my fiancé, but, you know, I have another 20% you know, of other interests out there. Well, that's not the picture here. Actually, Paul, when he describes this matter, he, he uses the phrase describing the bride. He says, I want to present, to the Corinthians, I want to present you to Christ, speaking of those believers in Corinth, as a pure virgin. See, the idea here is something pure, and pure purity, in its more simple kind of under, uh, uh, meaning, is just something that doesn't have mixtures. Think in chemistry. What's a pure substance? No mixtures there. It's just one substance. You don't have two things together. That's the idea here. And the bride is pure. In which sense? First and foremost, she has a pure heart towards her bridegroom. There is a desire, it's, it's an exclusive desire for the Lord, Lord Jesus. There is no divided interest in her heart. Alright? So that's the kind of basic spiritual character when you consider this corporate entity, the bride. How about the other one? How about Babylon? How about the harlot? Well, it's just the opposite. If the bride represents this pure love for the Lord Jesus. The harlot has some, there is self-love going on there. There is a principle that is based on self-gratification. 
All she cares about is somehow fulfilling what is her desire. It's something totally defiled. It's illi- the, whole, the whole picture presents to you. And please, keep this in mind. This is not referring to something just on the sexual realm. right? It's a picture that uses the, the metaphor is presented in, with some very graphic words. But it's something that transcends something just on that kind of physical or sexual level. It's something that speaks of a desire, uh, but not just on that realm, on the, as, as a whole, a spiritual principle. And there is mixture going on. There is self, a desire for self above everything else. That's what the harlot is standing for. And of course, if the bride is the one that submits to Christ as her head, the harlot is just the opposite. It's someone that doesn't, couldn't care less about the Lord Jesus. She lives for herself. She's living for her, under her own headship, if you will. She's not submitting to God. She's not submitting to Christ. That is the principle. That is the character that is in view here. All right. Uh, I feel that for us to kind of understand a little better this matter of the harlot, right? We need to have an, a second background here. And try to understand what does Babylon stand in the Bible. And before I go any further, uh, Babylon is a big theme when you go through the Bible. And we are not going to do that tonight, for sure. Right? It's not our kind of intention here. It's a really vast theme. It starts in the very beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. And it goes all the way to Revelation. You're going to find Babylon in some shape or another, through the whole Bible. Uh, and I would like to consider here the kind of, uh, the more basic, in, in my understanding, the more basic meaning that the Bible presents for Babylon, for this spiritual principle. To do so, uh, I feel that it's kind of very important that we have a little extra background. Uh, some of the students of the Bible, they refer to a law of interpretation in the Bible. And I'm not sure how, it's, how it goes in English, but it's something to the effect of the law of first occurrence or first mention. And basically, it's something like this. If you want to understand a certain term or a certain uh, uh, figure in the Bible, go to the first place in the Bible where that is mentioned. And usually you have a key that will kind of open the meaning of that thing that you're studying. Right? And we would like to apply this to this Babylon. We, we would like to understand, okay, what does Babylon stand for? What is that spiritual principle? Where is the first place you find Babylon in the Bible? Genesis. Genesis. Uh, can we go a little more specific, a, a, a chapter? I'll give you a kind of a hint. It's referred to not by the exact same name, Babylon, but by a kind of very close name, uh, Bab- <laughs> Babel. Where is that? Genesis chapter... It's actually chapter 10, and the, uh, the complete story is given to you in chapter 11 of Genesis. And it's very important that you consider that first time that Babylon is mentioned. In this case, it's Babel, but it's just the same thing, right? It's just like, a, 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 like the root of the same word. What is, what is going on when Babylon appears? So chapter 10 of Genesis, you have uh, the so-called, uh, sometimes it's referred to as table of the nations. After the flood, how does the, the earth got populated? And you have a description of all the nations of the whole world of the time. Seventy nations. And in the midst of that, you have a mansion to Babel. And in chapter 11, there is the Tower of Babel that describes... It goes, it goes a little deeper to try to describe to you what Babel is all about. But I think that just considering chapter 10, you already have a hint. Babel somehow, or Babylon, has to do with this world. Uh, remember, the 70 nations, the whole world is there represented. But in chapter 11, it sort of tries to give you what is the spirit of this world. And Babylon is being used as a uh, the way that I understand it, representing that whole world, in a sense. Okay, what is going on in the Tower of Babel? What is the basic thing? Uh, we know all, the, we all, I'm sure you remember this story, how they tried to build this really high tower, and the Lord at a certain point decided to check it out and said, okay, I'm going to confuse them, to confuse the languages here. 
and they got all kind of, uh, 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 they got uh, separated, <laughs> for lack of a better word. So that is what is going on. But let's try just to understand what was going on in that, in that occasion. All right. The Lord, after the flood, they, he gave a command to Noah and his sons. He said, okay, you replenish the earth. That was the commandment of the Lord to them. In other words, you scatter around the earth. You go and that's your mission. That's what you're supposed to do. In chapter 10 of Genesis, there is one guy that is named. A very kind of famous guy in, in, a, in a really distant past. His name is Nimrod. And this guy was probably the first kind of uh, monarch in the kind of bad sense of the word a kind of dictator that really started an empire, right? And, of course, part of his empire was, guess what, Babel, right? But this Nimrod is referred in chapter 10 of Genesis as a mighty hunter, right? We are not going through the details. Some, of, some scholars that study the Bible, they kind of help us to understand what does that mean? Why is the guy kind of hunting animals or, you know, and he became very famous? And actually... If you really go uh, study the, the passage there, apparently the meaning is not that he was a, hand, a hunter of, of animals or, or, or like a sport or something like that, but he became like a hunter of people. He became a tyrant, someone that created an empire. And in that empire, you know, there's, he's breaking several laws of the Lord. The Lord said to them, okay, you go and replenish the earth. He said, no. I'm staying here and I'm forming a kingdom. A big thing that I want to concentrate things around. Right? That's the first thing that is breaking the Lord's commandment. But the second thing, think of that, the cruelty. Here is a man that is killing other men to establish his empire. In other words, here you have a person that typifies rebellion. Open rebellion against God. And it is in that spirit that he builds Guess what? Babylon, or Babel. So what is Babylon at the end of the day? What is that spiritual principle behind Babylon? Well, we're already gathering several things here. Here you have something that stands for the world, for a system. See, an organization that, first of all, doesn't care about God. is in open rebellion against God. And that system somehow... Is, is opposing the Lord and is headed, not by the Lord Jesus, but is headed by a man that the, couldn't care less about God, Nimrod. So this is the spiritual principle, or this is the first time in the Bible that Babylon is mentioned. And, okay, here it goes. In my understanding, in its most basic uh, meaning in the Bible, Babylon stands just for the world. And here we have, we need another, a second background. What is the world when you read the word world in the Bible? And of course, there are several verses in the Bible. We are not doing a study on that, but I'll just give you kind of a, a little flavor. There, the world is used in several places in the Bible, and many times it's with more localized meanings. But at the same time, if you study all the reference to the world, you can sort of have a picture of what the world uh, means in the Bible as a whole. Okay? And to put it very simply, the world in the Bible stands for this system. A system that was established in this here on earth after man fell and is a system that essentially is headed by Satan. Satan is the spiritual force behind the system. Satan is the mastermind of this system. Sometimes we think that it's just a matter of, okay, a, a political thing or certain kind of institutions. Actually, if you read carefully the Bible, you'll see that this system is something that encompasses everything that you could think. All the order of things as we know it today is something that the Bible calls the world. Uh, I have the feeling sometimes that we tend as Christians to narrow down a lot the meaning of this, of what the world really means. So, uh, for instance, what do I mean by this? 
If you ask a Christian, well, do you think that gambling is the world? I say, oh, of course I do. What a horrible thing. You know, as Christians, we should not even think about that. Or prostitution, of course. That, that is a word, and rightly so. I'm not trying to say the opposite. Definitely, definitely it is. But is that, the, is that the only thing that the world is composed of? It's just those kind of awful things that we all know, even the people in the world, actually, they will, they will agree, well, this is, not, this is a terrible thing. Is that the whole thing? Hmm. Actually, I feel that when we think that way, we are really narrowing down the meaning of what the world is in the Bible. And remember, why, why are we talking about this? Babylon stands, represents this whole system, right? Uh, there is a verse, uh, probably should read it. Let's read in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. First John chapter five. <clears throat> Verse nineteen. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And this verse is very, very meaningful. It doesn't say uh, the non-commendable things of the world lie under the power of the evil one. So, as we said, gambling is a, very, is a terrible, awful thing. It's very uh, non-commendable, right? And we all agree, oh yeah, this, this is definitely something of the evil one. This is the world. But here he's saying the whole world, not just the things that we will label as something non-commendable. You see? The world, again, is this system that is vast. And someone has kind of Compare it as a big web. Something that goes in every kind of, is every area that you could think in human society, in, human, in the order of things as we know it. That's the world. Science, commerce, uh, because of time, we cannot go into that, but I'll really kind of challenge you. Please read Revelation chapter 18, which is the immediate background of what we just read, right? Chapter 19. Read chapter 18. You have a kind of very detailed description of what Babylon is about. And you know what? You find an awful lot of very commendable things in that description. Yes, there are the very non-commendable things, but you have references to commerce, reference to uh, material goods that in themselves are not wrong. right? Like food, like stuff that we use on a day-to-day basis. But all of that is somehow describing what Babylon is all about. In other words, Babylon stands for this system of things that after the fall of man, Satan organized. And when we are born in this world, it's not just on this world as the earth, we are born into that system. And without knowing, we are part of it. Well, chapter 19, why is it such an important theme? an important scene in the Bible. Well, because it's saying, essentially, prophetically, we're still waiting for that, it's describing how this order of things, as we know it, is coming to an end. How this system that Satan created is going up into smoke. And because of that, you may think that it's not a big deal, but yet, four times, all sort of beings, angelical, even redeemed ones are saying, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. An order of things is coming to an end. A new order of things is being established. The old entity, Babylon, the world, something that has been for, since the fall of man until today, until that day, that is, has been the order of things as we know it, is going up into smoke, is being destroyed. And in that moment, a new entity is gaining ascendancy. What is the new entity? The bride of Christ. And it's a totally different order of things. It's a totally different entity. The spiritual character couldn't be more different. And that's the picture. All right. And what is the relevance? Now comes the question. All this is supposed to be background. What is the relevance between this background and our own preparation to become the bride of Christ? I hope you see where we are going with this. 
I hope you have a, a kind of a, 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 somehow you can say, mm, wait a second. Could it be that the bride is prepared there because she overcame that spiritual principle that is represented by Babylon? Could it be that? Oh, yeah, for sure. There is a contrast here. So, in other words, the bride has nothing of Babylon in herself, right? If Babylon is that system that opposes God, that rebels to God, that somehow has, is like this big uh, squid with all these kind of tentacles in, that touches everything, somehow the bride, she got delivered from that system. Somehow she doesn't partake of that spiritual nature that is represented in Babylon. And that's part of the reason why she's there prepared. All right. Let's ask another question about the chapter we read before we move on and consider something in the life of Daniel. Why is the bride found in the position that she is found? Uh, we know that the obvious, the obvious answer here is that she, was, she has made herself ready. In other words, for her to come to that position where she is standing in glory, you see the scene? Babylon is in ruin, destroyed. She's coming to an end. And the bride is in glory. The bride is like, a, like entering into the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a feast. It's an, a new age of glory starting here. But why is she there? Let me just mention this. It's not because of an accident of destiny. It's not just because someday something happened that, you know, oops, something happened, you know, and... And uh, sometimes you have an earthquake, you know, and, and a, whole, a whole city is wiped out. And because of, the, of destiny, quote-unquote, something new starts in, to replace that. This is no accident at all. The bride is not, being, is not becoming, is not gaining ascendancy just because of accident of destiny. She's not there because of some sort of mechanical entitlement of, you know... Uh, and what I mean is something like this. If you know that if you're if you're born a noble or a, uh, you know, you are a noble. It doesn't matter if you're you know. I, I guess in the United States you don't have this kind of stuff, but in Europe you know you have like the the barons and the dukes and whatever those kind of titles. And if you're born with the the blue blood, as they say, that's it. You are noble, and and it doesn't matter what kind of character you have. You are entitled to be a noble because you were born in that position. And this never happens when it comes to spiritual matters. Well, it's true. The bride is born from above. She has, in a sense, divine love, a divine life in her. But that's not the reason, according to our chapter, why she is entitled to, be, to gain that preeminent position with the Lamb. There was a preparation that took place in her life. And without that preparation, there is no way for her to be in that position. And I just want to, please, as, as we are kind of closing our background, just keep this in the back of your mind. The contrast that is being presented in chapter 19 of Revelation, I feel that what the Holy Spirit is trying to somehow impress upon us is that the bride is the complete opposite of Babylon. She got delivered from that system. She overcame that spiritual principle that Babylon stands for. And that must be a very important key when we are going to, if we are going to understand what is this preparation that the Lord is doing in my life, in your life. We need to remember this. And hopefully Daniel, let's switch gears now. Hopefully from the life of Daniel, we can see some practical hints of someone that, learned the lesson that went through the preparation process and can somehow we, looking at his life by the grace of the Lord, hopefully we can learn some lessons in this matter of what is this preparation? What does it look like? What does it take for us to be prepared to be the bride? Uh, and very interesting, uh, the, the, the first thing that I want to call your attention, and, and of course we, we are kind of squeezed by time, there is so much things that we could say in the life of this man, Daniel. It's, it's really one of the most wonderful characters of the Old Testament, or, or any Testament for that matter. Such a wonderful testimony 
if you read his life. Of course, we are not reading his life. Uh, I guess, I hope that you have some of, his, of the stories in the, uh, in the book, in, in the back of your mind. Uh, let's hope for that. Uh, I'm going to mention one or two here and there. And we just need to glean one or a couple of principles. There is way more than could be said of how Daniel stands for someone that was prepared for the Lord. But I just want to call your attention, interestingly enough, where does Daniel spend most of his life? He's, of course, a Jew. He was born in Israel. There is no question about that. But do you remember where, this, where did he spend, you know, uh, probably since his teenage days or maybe early 20s, something like that? Where, did, where is the whole book going on? Where is the story happening? I th- oh, okay, Babylon. Okay, that, that's good. So there must be some sort of connection here, right? And actually, the, the thing that, I, as I was meditating on this, something that, was, that really caught my attention is that Daniel is, is one that has this wonderful testament. The last verse of the whole book, we should read that one, at least to kind of to get a... What is, what is the testimony of this man, Daniel? Let's read the last verse of the book of Daniel, and that's Daniel chapter 12. Daniel 12, verse 13. You have an angel speaking with Daniel here. And he says, But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Do you see what promise is given to Daniel? Here you have a person that is very, probably very, very old. Is, uh, who knows? 80, 90 years old, that's, that's probably the span time of Daniel's life. And at the end of his life, what a testimony to be that someone could listen to words as this. The angel is saying to Daniel, Daniel, you're going to rest. In other words, you're going to die physically. But one day you're going to rise up, you're going to wake up, and you're going to enter into your inheritance. In other words, he will be in that bride. In that new Jerusalem that you see at the, at the end of the Bible, oh yeah, Daniel will be there. And why does he have this wonderful promise given to him? Oh, because he was prepared. Don't make any mistakes about that. Again, there is no mechanical entitlement here. It's not because he was born a special guy. No. There is a preparation that is required. That is what our, chap- our, our main verse, don't forget it. Why is the bride there? Because she had made herself ready. Why is Daniel given this wonderful promise to inherit his inheritance? Because something happened in his life. The Lord was allowed to do a work in Daniel's life that prepared him to inherit his inheritance. And we would like to to take a quick look. But as I was saying, what really caught my attention as I was studying and meditating on this is that the very first chapter in the book of Daniel I feel we have a, a big key to his whole life. A very wonderful key. Uh, the short story is that uh, uh, Daniel was taken captive, right? When the guy, uh, the king Nebuchadnezzar, uh, that guy, <laughs> that, that long name, the Babylonian king, he took a bunch of people captive. It was not the whole nation, but maybe the best. He took the royal people, the nobles, etc., and Daniel was there. He was probably a, a very young man either in his teenage days, or I would even venture to say, he was probably, you know, the average uh, uh, age that we have here in this room, probably that was Daniel. It's pretty much our age, well, let me take myself out of this, but it's probably the average age taking, the, you know, those, those points, uh, uh, you know, the, the older points here in this, <laughs> in this population. That's Daniel. It's pretty much like you. And he was taken captive. But you know what was the first thing that happens, the first story recorded in Daniel's book? Well, he was supposed to go through, through some sort of training, right? And, and that training was supposed to teach him the culture of the new country he was going to, which was Babylon. And in that training, he was supposed, we don't know how long he, stood, he was there, but he was supposed to have special food and, you know, go through the training process. 
But somehow there was a problem with the food that he was supposed to eat. Uh, we are not given the details. Some scholars think that the food that he was that probably was offered to him was something that maybe was consecrated to idols. Okay, is a possibility. Some people feel feel that it maybe has something to do with uh, the food was not kosher. And of course, we have someone in the Old Testament living under ceremonial law. For whatever reason, that food, we, even if we cannot pinpoint what was the actual reason, that food stood in Daniel's heart and in his friend's heart as something that would defile him. As something that could, his conscience wouldn't be clear if he had that kind of food. So what is the thing that happens? Well, the, the, the verse, and we should read this verse, chapter 1 of Daniel. Verse 8. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. And we're stopping right here. It's kind of interesting because I see here the same principle of the preparation of the bride. You see, here you don't have a passive person saying, all right, you know, I, I'm here captive. I, I need to s somehow go along with the new culture, with the new... I, I need to, you know, to uh, grow in this new kind of position that I am placed, in this new court that I am. And let me go along with, the, with whatever happens. And passively, he is, you know, having a, a, an easy time. No. Here is someone that is making a stand, that is making a very definite, conscious decision. Actually, in, in, in another translation that I happen to use, I like more the, the words that, than what we have here in the American Standard. Uh, in my translation, it goes like something, uh, Daniel, he made a firm, a resolute resolve or resolution to not defile himself. There is a very definite decision that Daniel is making. Do you see the parallel with the preparation of the bride? What does it say? That the bride was made ready? That she was just sitting, you know, in a, in a chair comfortably and an angel was doing some preparation? You know when you get ready, you ladies, uh, on, uh, on a big event and you sit down and someone is putting the stuff on you. You're being made ready. You know, it's a silly example, I'm sure. But that's not what is happening here. In the preparation of the bride, there is an active role that the bride is taking. See? And that's a very, very important. To me, in my, in my heart, it comes as if the starting point of this whole matter of being prepared starts with a resolution in our hearts. That we say, Lord, I want to be prepared. I, maybe I don't have the strength in myself, but I know that you have the grace to enable me to prepare myself. And I want that. Because of you, I want to make that decision. I feel that everything starts at that point. And a second thing that is quite important. Do you see that the whole thing starts in the book of Daniel with a clear separation? There is a very clear delineation. It's not like, okay, whatever, that's fine. I, I can take the thing, you know, it's just a convenience. I, I, I have to take the food. Otherwise, the people are going to, to look at me, you know, with bad eyes or I'm not going to grow here in my new position. No. He knew somehow that that food represented something that opposed God. He knew that if he had that food, that would have some sort of negative effect in his spiritual life. And he said, no. There is a very clear separation. And of course, if you consider our background in, in Revelation, you have Babylon standing on one end, the bride on another, and there is no common ground between the two. There is total separation. Actually, it's very interesting. When you read the final scene in the whole Bible, it's, you are going to see a description of the bride. 
The bride is called New Jerusalem, right? And you have it in more details. But as Dana mentioned this morning, the bride in the, in, at the very end of Revelation is described as a city. And it's a kind of a very unusual city. Because in that city, you have the dimensions of the city. And you couldn't believe how tall are the walls of that city. I don't know if anyone has any idea. How much would you say that, you know, it's, it's maybe uh, a thousand feet tall? That would be a pretty tall. Can you imagine a thousand feet tall uh, 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 wall? That would be really nice. Difficult to build. But you know how tall is that city? Or the walls of the city? Uh, I'll not give you the dimensions in the Bible, but someone did a little calculation. And essentially, you have a wall that is 1,500 miles tall, not wide, tall. And of course, I, I know that there are several uh, different kind of understandings there. Some people will say, well, this is just symbolic. This. Remember that we are talking about a new heavens, a new earth in that final scene in the Bible. So the... Uh, I'm not going to enter into those details. Is that symbolic? Is that a, a literal thing? Uh, I don't know. There are different understandings, right? But whatever it is, whether you take this literally or whether you take it on a symbolic way, one thing is very clear. The Holy Spirit wants to impress upon us that the walls of that city is something that you never saw something as tall like that. Why? Why do you have walls in the first place? Isn't it to define some uh, separation, right? You have stuff outside the wall and stuff inside the wall, right? Whether it's a house, a city, whatever it is. The fact is that that city has walls, 1,500. And again, just to give you a sense of, even if it's symbolic, Mount Everest is the tallest place on earth, right? The highest place on earth. How tall is that in miles? Five? One, two, three, four, five. How tall are the walls of that city? 1,500 miles? Do you see the difference? So take Everest as like a little kind of ant. And what is the Holy Spirit trying to say to us? In the preparation of the, of the wife of the Lamb, in the preparation of the bride, a separation, a very clear separation, a thorough work of separation took place in the bride. There is total separation. And at the end you have these huge walls. Very clear differentiation between what is outside, what is inside. And do you see how Daniel speaks about that? When he came to something that could defile his life, his walk with the Lord, Daniel says, no. His friends say, no. We are choosing to not defile ourselves. And that's the decision that has to be made. That's part of the training of the bride. She made herself. Don't forget that. It's not someone that is going to do it for you or for me. It's not something that is going to come passively. I'm going to, okay, the day that, you know, something changes, maybe then I'm going to think about... I feel that there are so many things that defile. If you think for a second, let's go back to Babylon, standing for the world. There are so many things. We are living in the world. We are, and we are not, by the way, we are not supposed to leave the world. The Lord Jesus said, uh, praying for the, for the disciples. I don't ask you, Father, praying to the Father, that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the world. See, we are in the world, but we are supposed to be kept from being influenced by this world. So how does this process work? Mm, it's kind of tricky. Or it, it sounds like, well, how am I supposed to become a, you know, become a nun or, or you know, or go to a monastery or, or become a, a to the, go to the desert or something like that? And then the Lord is going to do a separation. I'm not going to mix with the world. Hmm. Actually, no. As we already said, the Lord, the prayer of the Lord Jesus is quite the opposite. We are supposed to be. We are planted in this world, and we are supposed to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. If you go to the monastery, I don't see how you're going to be light of the world. But you see that even if you're in the world, the world is not supposed to have 
uh, a kind of influence over you. I know that it's kind of tricky. I may be stepping over my brother's territory, but I just want to really, in passing, mention this. It's quite interesting that when Rebecca, uh, sorry, Dan, if, I, if I'm stepping over this, but just, just let me mention it. It's quite interesting that Rebecca is riding a camel. It's very, very interesting. Because when you read in the, in the Levitical law, you have a list of the clean animals and of the unclean animals. And what is the camel? You would say, well, it must be a very clean animal because the bride that is being prepared is riding the, the, has to ride a clean animal. No, it's an unclean animal. Isn't it kind of funny? So here you have a bride being brought to the bride and she's riding the whole the thousand miles on an unclean animal. But as dear brother Christian likes to say, it's okay for Rebecca to ride the camel, but it's not okay if the camel is riding on top of Rebecca. You see the difference here? And that's very important. Because here you have someone, here in spiritual, let's translate it in spiritual terminology, you have someone using of the world, but is not dominated by the world. You see the difference? I feel, brothers and sisters, that there's so much stuff in this world that affects us in a negative way. And you know, I'm not going to be legalistic here. I don't want to tell you, all right, you're watching too much TV, that's the world. You're playing too much video games, that's the world. You know, it's... It's very easy to go the legalistic way. And then we have, you know, that, that huge list of, okay, you're supposed to do this, you're not supposed to do that. Actually, if you have the life of the Lord in you, and I trust that that is the case, if we do have the life from above in us, whenever we touch something that affects our spiritual life, guess what will happen? The life inside you will tell you something you know the little light saying, okay, too much. Time to stop with TV. Time to not go to that website. Time to not play so much video game. If that life is inside us, that life will tell us. You know, it's interesting. It's like pretty much when you eat something. Think of you're eating something in the physical realm. If you eat something that is kind of poison or that, you know, got uh, the bad milk, if you're alive, and you are, uh, your body is going to say, all right, g- give me a break. This is, this is killing me. But let's say that you could feed a corpse. Let's say that you could you know, literally push something down the throat. Let's say you, you put really bad food down. What will happen? Absolutely nothing. What's the difference? Life. And you see the point here? If you are the Lord's, the life of the Lord is inside you. Are we listening to that life? That life will tell us, all right, it's time to stop. We don't need a list of things. We don't need to go out, no video games, no websites, no this, no that. But are we listening to that voice? 